Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. How does COVID-19 spread? It's a question that has fueled intense scientific debate over the past year and plenty of misunderstanding. But the evidence has become increasingly clear. SARS-CoV-2 is not just carried in droplets from people's breath or as particles on surfaces. It lingers in the air. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And on today's show, we're exploring COVID-19's airborne transmission. How does it work? And how can you reduce the risk? And the case for a ventilation revolution. Why it's time to clean up the air in buildings. But first... In early 2020, as scientists were scrambling to understand the mechanisms behind the spread of the new coronavirus, governments raced to implement pandemic response plans. Yet as the scientific and medical community has learned more about the virus, it's become apparent that the plans in many countries were based on a different type of pathogen for a different kind of pandemic. At the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was given advice to wash hands regularly and disinfect surfaces Alok Jha is The Economist's science correspondent. That's useful if you think that coronavirus spreads like influenza. And influenza spreads because of little droplets that come out of an infected person's throat and land on a surface. And then someone else touches that surface and transfers virus to their mouth or nose or something. Or if those droplets sort of float through the air for a metre or so and they get breathed in by other people. Fundamental thing being that those droplets don't travel very far. If someone coughs them out within a couple of metres, they fall into the ground and they're not really that dangerous to people. However, over the past year, it's become apparent that there's a third way that these viruses transmit, and that's through the air. So the viruses can hitch a ride on very, very small particles that come out of an infected person's throat. And these are aerosols. Aerosols are essentially very tiny particles that float through the air. And these particles can float for many, many meters. And they can also just linger in rooms. So if you're standing in a room with someone several meters away, um, over the course of time, they're breathing out viruses and it's just sitting in the same room. You can breathe those things in and get infected too. And that's kind of become apparent in the last 12 months or so. There's still controversy over this, by the way. It's not completely accepted by the public health community, but uh, people are taking it very seriously. Let me prod that a little bit, because that doesn't seem like a very controversial thing to say. If a disease is contagious, of course, it should be through the aerosols that the virus can be transmitted. What would be the argument to think that it wouldn't be transmitted that way? Ah, well, this is, uh, this, you're getting into some medical history here. So the public health advice that we got at the beginning of the pandemic was from public health experts and doctors. Of course, that makes sense. But that group of scientists takes its advice about how infections spread through the air based on research 
that kind of is outdated, to be honest. So they know that viruses spread on droplets and the viruses spread on aerosols and all of that, of course. But the way they define a droplet and the way they define an aerosol then determines what kind of advice they give. So, for example, the World Health Organization defines anything that comes out of a person's mouth, any droplet of mucus or saliva or something, that is less than five microns wide, so five micrometers wide, that's an aerosol. And an aerosol can float through the air and linger and all those things. And that's what they call airborne transmission. Any particles that are larger than five microns wide are called droplets. And droplets, by definition, fall to the ground within a couple of metres of wherever they're coughed out. And that's not airborne transmission. And so that's where the basics of the physics stops for the public health community. So why are those definitions limited? Now, modern research tells us that particles that are bigger than five microns, in other words, the ones that the World Health Organization calls droplets and thinks just drop to the ground very quickly, even particles bigger than five microns, they can float in the air for a long time because air currents can keep them up. When you breathe something out, you're breathing out hot air, essentially, and a human being is, is warmer than the air around it, usually. And so the gas you're breathing out is turbulent. It will contain uh, lots of energy, so those droplets will travel further. And what physicists will tell you now, using the very latest research, is that any droplet that is up to 100 microns wide can become airborne, given the right conditions. And so therefore, any droplet up to that level can be classed as airborne transmission. Now, the World Health Organization still refuses to accept that that is airborne transmission. So therefore, the advice is based on very old physics. You're telling me that the WHO doesn't accept what the scientists are saying now? Yeah, I mean, I can only speculate about the decisions that are going on within the WHO itself. So, you know, this is just my view from the outside, having spoken to physicists and others who tried to get this on the agenda for the WHO. The WHO and other public health officials made the calls that they did in February and March. And to be clear, I'm not saying that washing hands and social distancing is not a good idea. It definitely is. You should be doing those things. But the, the third mode of transmission, airborne transmission, is also important. And physicists have shown that that's true. Now, in the months after the pandemic was declared, physicists who'd studied how particles move and had updated the uh, research we're trying to get the attention of public health officials. They're saying, look, this is a really important update to your medical textbooks, so please take it into account. But medics and doctors, A, they, they were busy. They were doing a lot of complicated things at the time. So there's, there's that. And two, they don't want to be told what to do by physicists. We actually spoke to Lydia Morawska, a leading aerosol physicist last July on the show, when she and her colleagues first published an open letter campaigning for aerosol transmission to be recognized. So when did the consensus start to change? Back in about October last year, 2020, many, many public health organizations started to take it seriously and started to update their guidance to say that it's something to take into account, but it's not the main way that it transmits. And it's all basically down to still the fact that they still define airborne transmission as anything below five microns, and they don't want to accept that um, what they're looking at is airborne transmission. Several weeks ago, at the end of April, the WHO quietly updated a page on its website stating the virus can spread via aerosols, as well as larger droplets. It's a step in the right direction, but it falls short of the demands from scientists who specialize in how such tiny airborne particles move, a field called fluid dynamics. I'm Professor Martin Bazant, a professor of chemical engineering and mathematics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 
Professor Bazant and his colleagues recently created a risk calculator for the indoor transmission of SARS-CoV-2. He hopes that this will encourage public health bodies to think beyond the set two meters six feet social distancing rules, and more about how different indoor environments influence aerosol spread. Aerosols present two types of risks. One is a short-range risk, which comes from being directly impacted by a person's breath. So a good analogy would be with smoking. So when you see a person exhale smoke, you can see a high concentration of smoke being emitted in what we call a respiratory turbulent plume. And if your face is directly in that plume and you breathe it in, you will pick up a high concentration of particles. That kind of transmission can be protected against by distancing. So there's no magic number. Uh, Six feet or two meters provides a very significant amount of protection against that form of transmission. The second mode of aerosol or airborne transmission, however, is the exposure to the background air because these aerosol particles remain suspended for long periods of time. And so coming back to the analogy of smoking, this is the secondhand smoke. You can see the high concentration of smoke very close to a person who's smoking, but everywhere in the room you can see it and you can smell it. And the exposure to that smoke for a short time is much less because it's highly diluted. And the extent to which they're diluted depends significantly on ventilation and also other processes such as any filtration that's going on. However, the real threat emerges over longer periods of time. If you keep breathing that air, then over time, the threat can actually be larger than from the short range mode. And it's the exposure to that background air, which is what is believed now to be the most significant risk of transmission. Now, you released an app that calculates the risk of indoor transmission depending on a number of factors. How does that vary? Yes, so that's actually been my contribution uh, with my colleague, John Bush. So while the understanding of airborne transmission actually predates COVID-19 by, in fact, many decades, leading to what's called today the Wells-Riley models of indoor airborne transmission. So what we set out to do was to derive a safety guideline essentially to augment the public health guidance that you mentioned earlier. And what the formula tells you is that you must limit what we call the cumulative exposure time. So it's the product of the number of susceptible and affected people in the room. So essentially that's sort of the, roughly the number of people in the room. If you imagine one person coming in who's infected times the time spent in that room. So if you want more time, you can have fewer people. If you want more people, you get less time before a transmission would be expected to occur. And that time is bounded by a number of factors, which we have in our formula that include the ventilation rate, the rate of filtration, the sedimentation of the virus, the respiratory activity and ranging from resting, breathing, to speaking, to singing, or to exercising, and a number of other lesser factors. Oh, and of course, the most important factor, mask wearing. And if everyone is wearing masks, that, that factor actually comes in squared because it's basically being filtered at the source for the infected person. So all those factors come together in a formula that can be used to guide policy decisions or engineering choices such as installing ventilation, and also to guide personal decisions. And to make that easier and more accessible to the public, we've created an online app that can be run in basic mode where essentially you need to give very few numbers. We have some default settings for classrooms or living room, airplane, and other factors like that. Or it can be run in advanced mode where you can provide all the details of your HVAC system, or other factors in order to more quantitatively manage the risk. That's so interesting. Let me try to test this with a few archetypal places. And please help me understand if it's safe or not, and what might make it safe, if you're game. Sure, and I should preface whatever you're going to ask me by saying that actually my answer is probably going to be 
Can't say for sure. <laughs> Here we go. Gyms. So gyms may be okay, but it depends on certainly the rate of ventilation. Certainly a gym that has low ceilings and poor ventilation will be a problem. Uh, but gyms are one of the places to be concerned about, I would say that. Choirs. So choirs are certainly a high-risk group. And in fact, perhaps the most famous super spreading incident is that of the Skagit Valley Choir or Corral uh, in Washington State, one of the first cases in the United States of super spreading. It was a choir event that lasted two and a half hours. And with, I believe, 61 people, one infected person managed to infect, I think, 53 others. Of course, that was without masks in the early days. But there is a factor of a thousand difference in the emission of infectious aerosols between breathing at rest and singing. Nightclubs. Uh, nightclubs, the problem would be primarily the occupancy and possibly the ventilation, although nightclubs are designed with high ventilation rates because they expect high occupancy. So again, there may be situations where it's not so bad, but certainly in a nightclub, people are very close together. There's a high density of people. They also may be exerting themselves and so breathing harder, speaking loudly also. And also short-range transmission can be worse as well if people are not wearing masks in a nightclub. Big stadium sports match. So uh, sports matches outside, I think, have very low levels of risk, and that's been the case all along. It's been recently acknowledged even by the public health authorities that outdoor transmission is rare. It's not impossible, but it's rare. And essentially outdoors, you eliminate the long-range aerosol transmission, but you do still have the short-range. Offices. Okay, so for offices, a modern office and a modern building with high ventilation rates and people relatively spread out, relatively high ceilings, could be fairly safe and allow long periods of time for the occupants. On the other hand, there are certainly older buildings with smaller rooms where people may spend a lot of time together in an enclosed space with poor ventilation where there could be really amplified risk. Classrooms. Classrooms, it depends. And also, children are at much less risk themselves to bad outcomes from COVID-19 and also have a somewhat lower rate of transmission. So all those factors make classrooms often one of the safer places. And in fact, the data is now showing that when classrooms have been shut down or closed, that the transmission is much more likely outside of the classroom than in the classroom. So in fact, it could be safer just to have the kids in school, actually, than to have them out in the community and in their homes and at their friends' houses, not wearing masks indoors <laughs> uh, and spreading the virus there rather than being in a controlled setting in a classroom with various precautions in place and hopefully good ventilation. Trains and buses. Uh, there can be significant risk on public transportation, especially when there's poor ventilation. So another famous case of super spreading is from a bus ride early in uh, the pandemic in China, in Ningbo, where one infected person took a bus ride where they infected about a third of the bus and it was later determined that there was no correlation with the seating on the bus. But that was a bus ride during the winter when no outside air was being circulated through the bus. So they were essentially sharing the indoor air. So that's a bad situation. On the other hand, a lot of public transportation is highly ventilated just simply for other reasons, just, just for fresh air to breathe. So if you take, for example, a subway or other more modern buses, they may have high ventilation rates. But the key is what's the outdoor air fraction, how much air is being brought in compared to the size of the space and the number of people. Podcast recording studios. Oh, I actually don't know what your studio looks like. If you're in a really small space, maybe not. I can give you an example of something very specific that might be relevant. So here at MIT, actually, we have been assessing the transmission risk using our theory. And what we found is that most of our classrooms in fairly modern buildings with high ventilation are actually rather safe, even to full occupancy um, in, in many cases. On the other hand, if we look at small offices, for example, that our graduate students share, where there's maybe only 
two or three people in the room, they're much smaller, they have lower ventilation rates, and we can see there the risk can be significantly higher. So that might be more like your podcast studio. Both grad students at MIT and podcasters have an occupational hazard. We can already agree on that. Exactly, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, how can this model be applied to the real world if it's so variable? Right, so we have certainly tried to make it as simple as possible. But yet there are these factors to consider, and we are in fact fighting against oversimplifications such as strict occupancy cap, strict time limits, let's say, because there are these factors. On the other hand, if you use our app uh, or just work with the formula that we have, you can also use a spreadsheet that we provide. You can assess certain types of spaces. So for example, let's say you have a school district and you know generally what are the features of your classroom. You can build confidence as to whether it's safe to have full occupancy of those classrooms with masks or even eventually without masks using our formula. You can also work backwards and take into account the prevalence of infection in the population and also the level of vaccination or previous exposure giving immunity in the population and assess at what point is it safe to reopen. So we also are hearing now pronouncements from various officials that at a certain level of prevalence, now it's safe to reopen. What we would say to that is it's safe to reopen some spaces and possibly not others. And the exact point where you need to make that decision can vary significantly depending on the type of space. So should we be thinking about aerosols and aerosol spread more generally for things like the common cold and the flu and other diseases? Absolutely. So that's a great point, which is not widely appreciated. So first of all, the common cold is very similar, in fact, to the SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. There are many other diseases that are known to be transmitted through the airborne route, and even that's the dominant mode of transmission. One of them is tuberculosis, which is a bacterial disease that was believed for decades to be spread through large drops from coughs and sneezes, and ultimately was shown to be only transmitted by airborne because you need these tiny aerosol particles to get deep inside your lungs, and only the aerosol particles can actually make it there. That took many decades to recognize, but it is now well known. Uh, Measles the seasonal flu, and a variety of other diseases, including the original SARS, in fact, from 20 years ago, all of them have been recognized to certainly be transmitted through the airborne route, and in many cases, even that that's the dominant mode of transmission. Martin Bazant, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been nice to speak with you. Coming up, how to reduce the risk of airborne transmission by changing how people think about air quality. And speaking of quality, if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, now's your chance. You can find your best introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. And don't forget to tell them I sent you. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. As knowledge of the virus's airborne spread has increased, people's behavior has changed. 
That's why mask wearing is encouraged in many indoor spaces, like supermarkets and on public transport, even when they aren't particularly crowded. But many scientists and engineers are now arguing that behavioral change alone is not enough to manage the risk and is not a sustainable solution. Securing indoor spaces against this pathogen, and the next one, will require a structural change. It's time for a ventilation revolution. It's no good just having a recirculating air conditioning unit, because all that does is distribute the air, same air, over and over in the space. Kath Noakes is a professor of environmental engineering at the University of Leeds in Britain. When we're looking at a ventilation of a space, what we want to do is make sure that the air that's in the room gets replaced with outdoor air that doesn't contain any virus. Now, how can a layperson like me tell what is a well-ventilated versus what is a poorly ventilated space? What can I look out for when I'm at the office or in a coffee shop or a restaurant? I think the first thing is a visual clue. Look and see whether you can see a ventilation system. You know, can you see grills on the ceiling? Or can you see that there are windows open or doors open? So there's some means of that air getting in and out. In some places, odour can tell you something. So, you know, if you go into a space and it smells musty, it smells stale, the chances are that space isn't particularly well ventilated. And then in a lot of workplace type spaces, you know that feeling in the afternoon when you feel a bit sleepy, you've been in a meeting for too long and some of it's just because it's a bit dull, but actually quite a lot of that is because the carbon dioxide from your breath has built up over time, it's not been ventilated away and that carbon dioxide actually makes you feel a bit drowsy. It's never because of my podcast guests, I just want to be clear on that. It's always because of me, not them. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, how can a poorly ventilated building or or space be adjusted or modified with public health in mind? So the first thing is to, to look at the existing systems and say, well, can I open the windows? Can I prop the doors open? Um, you know, there are places where that is challenging because it might be damp, cold, security might be a problem. But that's your first step. The other step is where we've got existing mechanical ventilation systems. And often the facilities managers, the building estates managers can adjust those to make sure that they provide a higher flow rate than they perhaps would normally do. We can also reduce occupancy in spaces and that's not practical everywhere. But of course, you know, if you've got less people in the space, then essentially there's more air per person available in that space. So if you were to build an office space from scratch with public health being the key factor, what would it look like? What you want is a building that's well insulated. It's airtight from a perspective of it doesn't have uncontrolled ventilation, but then it has some form of ventilation system with heat recovery and coupled with low carbon heating to give us that low energy building, sufficient heating to allow a good ventilation rate, but good air quality for people. And if we get that right, it's healthy for people more broadly, people will be more productive, people will be uh, happier, um, and of course it tackles infectious disease. And do we have the technology to do that now at a cost-effective way, or do we need to innovate to build that? There's probably a bit of both. Plenty of buildings can be ventilated better with just some changes to, say, the window design or changes to even how we manage the windows. Um, you don't you don't have to have all your windows open fully the whole day. You can open them periodically and that will often give you pretty decent ventilation. We can use quite simple technology, so something like a carbon dioxide meter is something that you could use 
to help manage that ventilation, to identify when it's poorly ventilated and identify what actions allow you to improve it. But I think there will be some need to look at how we can innovate and develop new technologies that allow us to retrofit buildings. So how can governments be incentivised to encourage such building design? The incentivization needs to come from looking and understanding the health impacts of it. It's very easy to say this is going to cost us money, but actually if you're a major employer and you invest more in your ventilation system, um, but it saves you a huge amount because you've got less employee sick days and they're more productive, actually that's a win. We invest in heating systems for buildings, we invest in a new boiler for a building, why, why should the air be any different? We, we, we shouldn't just ignore the air because it has probably as big a determinant on our health as the heating system and the water that comes into your building. So we need to be able to quantify the benefits of it. And, and I mean, look at this pandemic. How much has this pandemic cost the world? It's an enormous amount of money. If we had reduced those rates of transmission by having better environments where transmission happened less frequently, we may have never had the lockdowns. Well, companies and building engineers and architects have a duty of care. I guess what you're telling us is that they need a duty of air. Yes, uh, and we need to know whose responsibility it is. You know, once that building has been handed over, do you know who built the building, who designed the building you work in? Bet you don't. (laughs) But the car you drive, you know which company that is, don't you? Because it's got a little badge on the front that tells you. So interesting. Kath Noakes, thank you very much. Thank you. Scientists like Martin Bazant and Kath Noakes are pressing for a transformation in how we think about the air we breathe when we're inside, not just to make buildings safer during this pandemic, but to better protect the public in the long term. Bad air, not just pathogens, but pollutants in rooms generally, if that's not well ventilated, that's been associated with all sorts of conditions. Our science correspondent Alok Jha again. From headaches and fatigue, shortness of breath, irritation of the eyes, loosely termed that this is called sick building syndrome. It's a sort of set of non-specific ailments related to being inside places that don't have good air. It's important for schools as well. Most schools around the world don't have good ventilation in classrooms, and that can affect children's brain development. It can cause cardiovascular problems in the long term. It also stops them from concentrating. Experiments have been done to show that if you improve the ventilation in classrooms, give them fresh air on a more regular basis, then the sort of prospects for education look much, much better. All of this has basically been ignored until now. So how hard would it be to reassess these priorities and do something about the ventilation in these spaces? Do you know, it's not that hard. What you need to do is open more windows for a start, if you can, in places where the pollution outside is not terrible. There's lots of actually research on airflow modelling in classrooms and things now that show that with very cheap box fans with a filter attached in one corner of the room, that's basically enough to make sure that that room itself is clean, has enough ventilation going through it. Now, yes, if you have a bit more budget, you can start doing things like installing more sophisticated mechanical ventilation, especially in public places. And and gyms, for example, classrooms, offices, these are the kinds of places that do have investment in, in these sorts of things. And we should be encouraging businesses, public health authorities to take this seriously in the way that we take food safety seriously. We don't want food to give us disease or cause us problems. And so restaurants have 
hygiene standards, which they have to abide by and are monitored. This is the kind of thing that you could imagine doing with ventilation. You can have ventilation standards in buildings that to sort of make sure that they're safe and healthy and reduce illness. Now, Professor Noakes earlier told us about carbon dioxide monitoring. What role could carbon dioxide monitoring play in this? Should there be a legal CO2 requirement for buildings? So one thing that would be an immediate and very easy thing to do in improving ventilation is to give people more information about how well ventilated their spaces are. We just don't know at the moment. People are just unaware of it. And carbon dioxide monitoring is a way of doing that. So carbon dioxide itself is a proxy for how well ventilated your space is. So in the outdoor air around you, carbon dioxide is at at, um, a concentration of something like 400 parts per million. So out of every million atoms of gas in the atmosphere, 400 of them is CO2. That's the natural level. Now, human beings, when we breathe out, our breath contains about 40,000 parts per million. So, you know, if you sit in a room that's closed off and not ventilated, over time, the amount of CO2 in that room will increase. The concentration will increase. And that just gives you a proxy for how much fresh air is getting in there. And yes, you could have standards. So if you read on your carbon dioxide meter that the concentration of CO2 in your room is something like 4,000 parts per million, that would be dangerous. It means that something like 10% of the air that you're breathing has been breathed by somebody else. So that's risky if somebody else around you is emitting viruses. And so, you know, we could use it as a way to keep rooms ventilated. Alok, is this really going to start an air quality revolution? I really do hope so. I mean, I think that indoor air is as important a public health issue as food safety, clean water, all of these things. Um, I'm sure there was at some point people thought that cleaning water was not that useful either. But of course, it's saved countless lives. These are now basics. We don't even question that these things should be clean. You only eat food that doesn't have poisons and and toxins and things in it. And you should expect the same from literally the air that you breathe. There's no sense in thinking that this is not an important health issue. Alec, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Ken. And you can hear more from Alec and his weekly podcast, The Jab, where they've been exploring the ins and outs of the global COVID-19 vaccination campaign. Next week, Alec and the team will be discussing the role vaccinations will play in the future of travel as many countries tentatively reopen their borders. That's The Jab from Economist Radio, available from wherever you listen. And thank you for listening to Babbage. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast platform is. The producer is Jason Hoskin. Our thanks also to the incredible Amika Shortino-Nolan and the brilliant Abisoye Oshindairo for additional production help. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, well-ventilated, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.